Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in. Turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> listening to scary stories told in the dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to the beginning of season 10. 10 seasons, can you believe it? I'm your host, Otis Jari, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of the Vespers Bell, about extraordinary experiments, very colored vivisectionists, tricky televisions, and eldritch egos. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail... So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Sometimes when things go wrong, you bring in an expert to handle the problem. Or sometimes you bring in someone you can trust to do a job discreetly. Oliver Mason is not exactly trained as a doctor, but when he receives a call to a local asylum, he knows not to ignore it. In our first story from the Vespers Bell, we're about to meet a most unusual patient, 
and how appearances can indeed be deceiving. Without further ado, I present to you From Madness Born. The rain was already coming down hard when Oliver Mason had gotten the call that his presence was required immediately at Avalon Asylum. He was at first quite bewildered by this, since Oliver Mason is not a doctor, but the proprietor of a men's clothing store. When he began to object, the voice on the other end cut him off and informed him that his presence had been requested by the asylum's principal donors, Crow, Crowley, and Chamberlain. Oliver instantly fell silent at the mention of his patrons, as he referred to them in polite company. He briefly considered using the late hour or weather as an excuse, but before he could even begin to speak, the voice on the other end once again cut him off, telling him that he was expected before unceremoniously hanging up. Oliver sighed as he placed his own receiver in its cradle, but wasted no time in letting his wife and daughter know that the boys at the finance firm needed him to drive into Sombermory so that he could take their measurements and place their order first thing in the morning. Given their usual hospitality, he might be a while. They each gave him a kiss on the cheek goodbye, his wife quietly reminding him that he, she really wouldn't mind him moving his mistress into town if it meant him having fewer late-night business calls. He insisted it was actually for business, though she seemed as unconvinced as ever, and told him to drive safe. It wasn't even a half-hour's drive into Sombermory, and it was one that Oliver had made often enough, but he still resented having to make it at night and in the rain just because some pompous plutocrats he owed a favor to decided they needed some pressing need of him and in a madhouse of all places. Avalon Asylum was over a hundred years old. Its weather-stained and ivy-covered exterior, walking a fine line between quaint and condemned. Though the hour was still early, none of its many windows gave off any light at all, and any rational person could have been forgiven for assuming that it was utterly abandoned. Oliver didn't know what kind of lunatics the asylum actually claimed to treat, but he had an uneasy suspicion that tonight was the night that he would find out. The asylum itself was situated in the middle of the Avalon River that ran through the city. It had been built on a small island to create an illusion of security, but it was far from an Alcatraz. Any escaping lunatic who could swim would be able to cross the river easily enough, and if they couldn't swim or just didn't feel like getting wet, Freedom was just a short walk over the poorly guarded bridge. The gate attendant had waved Oliver through without even asking for ID. He parked as close to the main entranceway as he could, but made no rush to get out in the rain. His fedora and trench coat offered more than adequate protection from the elements, and he was not eager to learn what nightmarish things awaited him inside the madhouse. Ah, Mr. Mason, welcome, welcome. So glad you were able to join us on such short notice. Seneca Chamberlain greeted him as he stepped into the asylum's candlelit visitor's parlor. 
Chamberlain is always worn an ornate three-piece suit, top hat, and an insufferably smug smile. My apologies for the poor lighting. It's, well, it's related to the situation at hand, you see. Just hand your coat and hat to Mr. Woodbead there and have a seat. You know Mr. Crowley, of course, but I don't believe you've had the pleasure of Master Erasmus Crow. Erasmus Crow, like every other member of the Crow family that Oliver had met, had white hair, pale skin with an odd tinge of silver to it, and vivid blue-green eyes. What happened to Eratosthenes? Oliver asked, disinterestedly, as he handed off his wet outerwear to Chamberlain's butler. Crossed the river Styx, I'm afraid. The Crow family has never been as adept as Seneca and I at cheating the dread Persephone. Crowley mocked, his monotone voice booming through a gramophone horn. Crowley had cheated Persephone by binding his soul to his brain, persevering his brain in a bubbling vat of alchemical elixirs and mounting said vat upon a telekinetically operated clockwork pedestal, as one does. Well, let's give credit where credit's due, Crowley. The crows are good for dealing with our more mundane clientele, since we can't exactly pass you off as just having a rare skin condition. Seneca remarked, gesturing for would-be to offer Oliver a cigar. With all due respect, I didn't drive all this way at night and in the rain just to listen to you three hens exchange petty insults, Oliver said as he deliberately shunned the proffered stogies in favor of his own satin stag cigarettes. Why am I here, boys? Well, that's a good question. Erasmus said as he impertinently snatched one of Oliver's cigarettes for himself. How is a haberdasher supposed to help us out here? Because before he was a haberdasher, Mr. Mason, he was a soldier, Seneca replied. More importantly, he was a soldier who fought against enemies he's not permitted to talk about in polite company. He helped liberate the Hexenlock concentration camp at the end of the war. Shot a Nazi warlock while he was at it, too. Oliver, tell Master Erasmus about how you shot a Nazi warlock. Oliver took a drag from his cigarette before listlessly turning his head toward Erasmus. I shot a Nazi warlock, he said apathetically. It's a good thing everything you did across the pond is classified, because you're rubbish at telling war stories. Chamberlain rolled his eyes. Anyway, when Mr. Mason returned, we gave him the loan he needed to get his business up and running, and I personally arranged for a little unsilly assistance when he and his wife were having trouble conceiving, because I knew that this was a man I wanted in my debt. I presume you've brought your sidearm, Mr. Mason? Oliver nodded slowly and pulled out his gun from his suit jacket. It was a custom-made revolver that held seven bullets, forged from a marble black metal that was unusually cold to the touch. Oliver didn't know what the metal was or who had made the gun, only that it was able to kill things that claimed to be unkillable. Yes, that's the one. Chamberlain smiled. And you have it loaded with the proper ammunition, I trust. Oliver opened the gun cylinder and pulled out a silver bullet etched with a calivric ruins around its circumference. Excellent. That ought to do the trick. Do the trick against what? 
Oliver asked, unable to suppress his irritation as he reloaded and holstered his gun. Well, you see, the thing is, it's sort of a, well, some might call it a Crowley. It's nothing you can't handle, my boy. Crowley assured him. You're serious. You're just going to point me in the right direction and tell me to shoot first and ask questions later. Oliver asked in disgust. Crowley and Chamberlain both turned toward Crow, as he was their junior-most partner, and as such, onerous duties of this sort often fell upon him. It's mad, Erasmus said at last. The patients we take in here are the kind of lunatics that people just want to get rid of. They're outcasts. No one gives a damn what we do with them. So we do with them as we damn well please. Crowley, in particular, comes up with all sorts of occult experiments, and one of his experiments is now loose. Well, not loose, exactly. It's still in its ward, which we've evacuated and sealed off. The situation isn't completely out of hand, Seneca insisted. Then why is the electricity out? Oliver asked. We never said the electricity was out, Erasmus replied. Electric light seems to provoke it, so they're off for the time being. Candlelight doesn't seem to bother it as much, though, so we can at least give you a lantern. Erasmus passed him a cast-iron kerosene lantern that looked like it had been there since the asylum first opened, but Oliver made no move to take it. What kind of danger am I in, he demanded. None, if you shoot it in the head before it has a chance to retaliate. Seneca replied. It has to be the head? Oliver asked. Well, that's technically all that's left of it. Crowley admitted. Anything else you see in there is purely affectation. I'll keep that in mind, Oliver said as he put out his cigarette. Which way is it, then? Woodbead will show you to the ward, Chamberlain said with a nod to his butler. Oliver gave a purely perfunctory nod in return as he rose from his seat. With his gun in one hand and the lantern in the other, he followed Woodbead through the dark and deathly quiet hallways until they reached a wide set of doors labeled Experimental Ward, Authorized Personnel Only. Woodbead slid open a metal viewing port and cautiously checked the inside of the ward. The entry is clear. He reported as he pulled out his keys and opened the doors just wide enough uh, for Oliver to slip through abruptly slamming them shut as soon as he was on the other side. He remained just outside, though, peering through the glass, vigilantly watching to ensure that Oliver didn't try to leave until after his task was finished. The antiquated lantern did little to illuminate the abysmal ward. Beds and other furnishings had been thrown out, light bulbs had been shattered, and banks of industrial-sized medical equipment had been smashed and toppled. There was a strong scent of formaldehyde and other potent chemicals, powerful enough to make Oliver wish he still had his gas mask from his army days. The only sound was the rain pelting against the windows, with no sign of whoever was responsible for this disaster. With a steady hand, Oliver slowly swept the lantern back and forth as he meticulously advanced to the ward glass and other debris loudly crunching under his leather shoes as he did so. Even though the chemical fumes were stinging his eyes, 
he fought the urge to blink. The ward was so dark with so many places to hide that if something came hurtling towards him, the blink of an eye could literally mean the difference between life and death. Oliver was over halfway through the ward when his light fell upon something that finally gave him pause. It was a metal bed frame, the first one he'd seen that wasn't overturned. It was draped in a black bed sheet, which itself seemed unusual for a medical facility, underneath which was a huddled figure. Oliver pointed his gun at it, but resisted the temptation to pull the trigger immediately. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. For all he knew, it was a patient hiding from whatever he had been sent in to kill. And he didn't want innocent blood on his hands. Identify yourself. He whispered, fully ready to shoot it in an instant should it become hostile. The figure under the sheet raised its head slightly but made no effort to pull the sheet back sat up very slowly under the sheet, revealing itself to be well over six feet tall. Identify yourself now or I'll shoot. Oliver took a step back as he held his gun toward the figure, his aim trained on its head as Chamberlain had recommended. My name's Charlie, he replied timidly, speaking in the voice of a small child. Please don't hurt me. Damn it, Oliver thought to himself. He scrutinized the figure as meticulously as he could in the dim light, and without getting any closer, and he realized he couldn't actually tell if it was sitting on the edge of the bed or standing on it. If it was sitting on the bed, then it was bigger than he was, but if it was standing up on it, then it easily could have been a child. Hello there, Charlie. Nice to meet you, he said cordially. My name's Oliver. Would you mind coming out from under the sheet so that we can talk face to face? I can't come out, it said with a fervent shake of its head. Why's that? Oliver asked with a practiced paternal patient. You'll shoot me if you see what I look like, Charlie whimpered. Oliver let out a sigh and, against his better judgment, lowered his gun. Listen, Charlie, I'm not going to shoot you. How about you tell me what happened here? Can you do that? He asked. The figure nodded sullenly, but its posture remained every bit as despondent, suggesting to Oliver that his promise not to shoot it carried little weight. Ever since I was little, I would shake and fall down for no reason. I couldn't control it, it would just happen. The doctor called it epilepsy, Charlie explained. Sometimes I'd break things or wet myself. Mother used to say I'd grow out of it, but it only got worse as I got bigger. 
I was an embarrassment and too much trouble, so father sent me away. Mother said it wasn't forever, just until I got better, but I don't think father ever wanted me back. It didn't matter anyway, because the doctors here weren't even trying to make me better. They'd strap me to the bed and stick me with needles. They said it was medicine, but all it did was make me sick and sleepy. Then they'd stick wires to my head and electrocute me to make me shake and wet myself worse than I ever did before, sometimes so much that I couldn't even remember who I was. Then, then that brain in a jar came, shouting up made-up words. It was so loud, and he wouldn't stop talking, and none of it made sense. He called for his surgeon. He was wearing a mask, but not a doctor's mask. It was leather, and it covered his whole head with a brass mouthpiece and goggles, and it had long tubes feeding into it from a backpack. He took out a knife, not a scalpel, but a giant dirty knife and started cutting. He kept cutting and cutting and cutting, and it hurt so much. He kept cutting no matter how much I begged him to stop, and I didn't understand why I wasn't dead, and I still don't understand. He cut so much, there was nothing left. Charlie began to weep softly, his head hanging down limply, as he drew the black bedsheet around him even tighter. Charlie, did you do this? Oliver asked, holding up the lantern and shining it around the desolate ward. Charlie hesitated, but eventually he shamefully nodded his head. Yes, he admitted quietly. They had me tied to the bed, but they cut so much... There wasn't enough left of me to hold down anymore. I sat up, and when I looked down at my own bloody and mangled body, I screamed. But when I saw my reflection in the window, I... Uh, I don't even know. I smashed the light bulb so I didn't have to look at myself anymore. And then I smashed everything else until I was too tired. And I laid down to cry until I was too tired for that, too. Oliver looked around the ward again, appraising the destruction... There was no way any child, no matter how mad with grief and rage, could have done all that. He had to know what he was dealing with before he made any irreversible decisions. Charlie, listen. I need to see what they did to you. He whispered as reassuringly as he could. Can I take the sheet off of you, please? Do you promise you won't scream? Charlie whimpered. I promise, Charlie. Oliver nodded, and he meant it. He was a disciplined soldier, and he'd seen all variety of mutilated bodies, both living and dead, during his deployment overseas. More importantly, he was a fairly decent father, and the last thing he wanted to do was upset a troubled child. Moving slowly, Oliver grabbed the top of the bedsheet and gently tugged it off. What he saw was a human nervous system suspended in midair, floating brain with its spinal cord dangling limply like a tail. The nerves seemed to move of their own accord and had been responsible for holding the bedsheet in the shape of a human body. The eyes remained intact as well. Naked bloodshot orbs with pupils dilated as far as they could go, leaving no visible iris. What was truly repugnant, though, was that every inch of nerve tissue was coated with some kind of black fungoid growth, rhythmically expanding and contracting as if it were breathing. It was fuzzy and damp and wheezing, 
and the way it so greedily engrossed and permeated the brain with its mycelium made Oliver think it was a parasite of some kind. Although, if it was what was keeping Charlie alive, then perhaps the term symbiote would be more appropriate. Crowley, you twisted bastard. Why would you do this? Oliver whispered in disbelief. I can never go back now. Back home, can I? Charlie asked, the nerves where his throat should have been, vibrating slightly as he spoke. Oliver sighed, setting the lantern down. He glanced around the upended ward, his eyes settling on the rain, pounding upon a nearby window. No, son, I'm, I'm afraid not. Everyone in the asylum heard the gunshot. By the time Crowley, Crow, and Chamberlain had reached the ward's entrance, Oliver was already out. It's done, he reported solemnly, his gun still smoking in his hand. It's dead? Chamberlain asked hopefully. Shot in the head, like you said, right between the eyes. The bullet tore right through it and still had enough energy to break a window. Like the thing had been made of smoke. Oliver reported, holstering his gun and taking out his pack of cigarettes. Chamberlain nodded toward Woodbead, who pulled out a clockwork device that resembled a Geiger counter and went in to confirm the kill himself. What about the body? Is it intact? Crowley demanded shrilly. Afraid not. The creature deteriorated into miasma the second the bullet made contact, which promptly evaporated. Oliver claimed as he lit a cigarette. What? Crowley demanded. How is that possible? Beats the hell out of me. I'm not a thaumatologist. You gents just brought me in to shoot the damn thing, and that's what I did. Oliver said nonchalantly. Woodby stepped back out of the ward, holding his scanning device high so they could see it all. I performed a full sweep. There's no body, and I didn't get a single ping on the parathermometer. calamitous, blundering ignoramus. Do you have any idea how valuable that body would have been to my research? Crowley screeched lividly as he rolled towards Oliver. Easy, Crowley, easy. Chamberlain shouted as both he and Crow held him in place. Need I remind you this entire incident was your fault to begin with? I brought Oliver in to clean up your mess, and that's all I care about. If you want your test subjects in one piece then you should take better care that they don't break loose to begin with. Crowley wrinkled his gray matter at Chamberlain, but said nothing. Mr. Mason, I apologize for my colleague's outburst. You did splendidly. Chamberlain congratulated him. He reached into his breast pocket and pulled out a neatly folded wad of cash. There's a little something for your trouble. And your silence, Crow added. Yes, Erasmus, obviously. No need to threaten the poor man after what he'd just been through. Chamberlain rolled his eyes. Honestly, of the three of us, sometimes I think I'm the only one who's capable of being affable. You're free to go, Mr. Mason. No sense in keeping you around these ingrates any longer. And thank you again, sincerely. Who knows what else that thing might have gotten up to if we had let it run amok. Oliver nodded without a word, pocketing the cash without counting it, as the exact sum hardly mattered to him. 
Woodby escorted him back to the main entryway, helped him into his hat and coat, and cordially waved him farewell as he drove off. As he drove over the bridge, he saw the asylum lights turning back on his rearview mirror, a view which was quickly obscured, however, by a figure under a black bedsheet slowly rising from its hiding place in between the seats. Thank you, Charlie said softly. Don't mention it, kid. Oliver said, turning his eyes back toward the road. The rain was easing up, but the road was still slippery. I'm just glad you got the right car and that the range on the parathermometer was crap. Where are you going to take me? Charlie asked. Up north to a place called Dreadfort. It's an old army buddy who works up there, Oliver reported. It's a long drive and it won't help my wife's suspicions that I'm having an affair, but it's the only place I know to take you. I won't lie, you're not going to have a normal childhood there, but you'll be better off than you would be with Crowley. Charlie nodded somberly, lowering his head but saying nothing. Oliver glanced up into his rearview mirror at the forlorn figure and decided that there was no need to let their many hours together in that car pass in uncomfortable silence. Hey, Charlie, do you want to hear about the time I shot a Nazi warlock? I hope you enjoyed From Madness Born by the Vespers Bell, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented featured author, you can help them by supporting them at simplyscarypodcast.com slash vespers-bell. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash v-e-s-p-e-r-s-dash-b-e-l-l. This author, who wishes to remain anonymous, but does not wish to be left alone, can be found on Reddit at r slash the Vespers Bell and r slash odd underscore directions, and would like me to point you toward their ebooks, The Heroic Chronicles 1 and 2, if you find tonight's mix of weird and horrific and the speculative to your liking. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave Vespers a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. I truly hope our friend found a good home. I don't know about you, but a floating nervous system tends to stick out in a crowd. Except maybe in Portland. Experimentation isn't limited to the earthly realm, however. Sometimes things that are truly out of this world want to find out everything about us as well. Perhaps maybe a little too much. In this second story from the Vespers Bell, we find that driving in northern Ontario can be surprisingly bad for your health. Without further ado, I present to you, they're not saying that it's aliens, but it's aliens. I'm sure you've seen the headlines by now. 
Sinan probably forgot about it, since the news cycles already left them behind for whatever you're supposed to be outraged about and terrified this week. In case you actually did forget, allow me to refresh your memory. UFOs are real. The United States military has admitted it's been encountering them for decades. Sure, they prefer the slightly less stigmatized term of unidentified aerial phenomenon, and they insist that they have no reason to believe they are actually alien spacecraft, but they won't rule it out either. In other words, they're not saying that it's aliens, but it's aliens. Now, I'm sure that the more skeptically inclined among you are certain that these UFOs, I beg your pardon, UAPs, are probably just some previously unknown meteorological phenomena, or even just misidentified mundane phenomena. The old swamp gas and weather balloon story, right? And even if you're willing to admit they're aircraft of some kind, they're probably just classified tech that no one wants to admit to. Because if someone did possess technology centuries beyond anything else on Earth, the last thing they'd want to do is openly capitalize on that technology, right? Well, as much as I hate to destroy those rather comforting delusions, I know for a fact that the UFOs the military are referring to are, in fact, not of this Earth in origin. I know that because I've been inside of one. It was last fall, just after dark, and I was driving through northern Ontario without another soul in sight. In retrospect, I was lost, but at the time, I was too stubborn to admit that to myself and to pull over and check my phone for directions. I kept telling myself, I'll see a sign, pointing me back toward Highway 11 sooner or later. But that's at best tangential to my story. All that matters is that I was driving alone and at night down a deserted stretch of barely paved road in the Canadian wilderness when my car suddenly died on me. And I mean completely and totally died. The engine, the battery, everything just cut out at once without any warning. Panicking, I slammed on the brakes and thankfully those still worked. So I came to a stop before I flew into a ditch or went spinning out of control. Once I was stopped, though, I was stuck. I tried turning the engine back on, of course, but it wouldn't even rev it. Turning the ignition accomplished absolutely nothing. I tried turning both my headlights and interior lights on and off several times, but I remained surrounded by the utter darkness without so much as a flicker. After that, my first impulse was, of course, to reach for my phone, only to see that it was dead, too. Had there been an EMP or something? I couldn't think of anything else that could have simultaneously caused both my car and my phone to so suddenly and completely die like that. As I sat alone in the dark, contemplating the odds and implications of a widespread EMP attack, I was suddenly immersed in a blinding white light. It was vibrating and making this weird whooshing sound, like that you hear when you put a conch shell to your ear. It was so loud that if I had been screaming, I didn't hear it. The light pulled me upward, and I passed through my seatbelt and even my car roof like they weren't even there. 
felt myself tumbling up higher and higher, faster and faster, for what must have been at least several minutes until I finally came to a stop. The intensity of the beam surrounding me subsided considerably, and I was able to get a look at my surroundings. I was in some sort of hangar, filled with a multitude of ellipsoid pods of various sizes. Everything in sight was made from a smooth, softly glowing opalescent substance. There were no sharp angles, all the edges and protrusions being softly curved. What stood out to me the most, however, was the pods were parked along every side of the interior with no designated floor, walls, or ceiling, as if the entire structure had been designed for microgravity, where there was no such thing as up and down. The one exception to this was the translucent porthole beneath me, revealing that I was in a vessel very high above the Earth's surface, quite possibly in low Earth orbit. As beautiful and awe-inspiring as that view was, I didn't get to enjoy it for long. A small, faint laser or particle beam was emitted from a seemingly random point in the hangar walls, and it struck me in between the eyes. Within seconds, I lost all bodily sensation, and I realized that I'd been paralyzed. I was initially horrified, but within a few more seconds, this also passed, as the beam seemed to have, well, it had a sedative effect as well. I didn't lose consciousness, though. I was still fully aware of everything that was happening around me. I was held in place for about a minute until, presumably, my captors were convinced that I'd been subdued. The beam holding me in place was released, and another beam began pushing me across the hangar and down a corridor until I ended up in an examination room of some kind. I was once again held in place by another white beam, and I found myself surrounded by four feminine humanoid entities. They were each about five feet tall, and none of them looked like they would weigh even a hundred pounds in earth gravity. Their skin was smooth, glossy, hairless, and strangest of all, technicolored. One of the creatures was rose, one lavender, one pink, and the other teal. They didn't wear any clothing, but their bodies were decorated by hundreds of small luminous diodes embedded into their skin, shining like stars and arranged into gracefully curving patterns that were unique to each of them. I saw that their feet were prehensil and that they each possessed a long prehensile tail wrapped around a shared perching ring to hold themselves in place. Their graceful fingers and toes had no nails on them, and while they did have five digits on each hand, in place of a pinky, they had a second thumb. There were several horizontal slits over their lower tracheas, capped with a small gem over their larynxes. On each side of their neck and above their collarbones were small cephalopod-like siphons which I presumed to be redundant airways into their lungs. As for their heads, these did bear a bit more of a resemblance to the standard pop culture depiction of aliens. They had small pointy chins, small mouths, and noses that were hardly more than bumps with nostrils. Their eyes were big, though, with dark sclera and large glittering irises that matched their skin tone. Their head curvilinear lines etched into them as well, and I got the impression that either the eyes or at least the lenses were bionic. 
What stood out most of all, though, were their elongated skulls with elliptical crystalline computer modules embedded into their sides, along with a smaller teardrop-shaped module embedded into the forehead. I knew they were computers of some kind, because I could see what looked like natural pathways flickering faintly inside of them. I could only assume that what I was looking at was some sort of bioengineered and cybernetically augmented species that had been designed to live and function in a three-dimensional microgravity environment. I noted that each girl did have a navel, which presumably meant they developed in a womb at some point, either natural or artificial. Probably artificial, as I didn't see how their big heads could pass through their narrow hips. But they still seemed far too human-looking to be aliens. Sure, it was conceivable that convergent evolution might result in something vaguely humanoid evolving on an alien world, but these girls were basically Star Trek aliens, for God's sakes. Did that mean that they were humans from the future, or a parallel universe, or a human subspecies that aliens had modified at some point? I still don't really know the answer. The Rose Girl took notice that my gaze was lingering on her naked body in a matter that was admittedly less scientific than the description I've provided here. She arched a hairless eyebrow at me in an expression that suggested that I was not the first man she'd ever met. She held up her right hand and moved her fingers about, as if she was tapping some invisible buttons. Suddenly, my clothes phased through my body, just as I had phased through my car earlier, leaving me as naked as my captors. They all gave me a satisfied smile, evidently preferring that we be on an even playing field. Pink, teal, and lavender girls all snatched some of my clothing as it floated away. They examined it curiously for a moment before tossing it aside in revulsion, both its texture and scent seeming to have offended them. The rose girl, apparently the one in charge, began to speak in a melodious language, the slits over her trachea opening and closing like keys on a wind instrument. I couldn't understand a word of it, of course, but it seemed much more complex and information-dense than any natural human language, one that required superhuman memory and cognition to speak fluently. For several minutes, she seemed to be lecturing her subordinates about me, all of whom listened with rapt interest. As they spoke, another four of the entities floated by behind them, this group led by a goldenrod girl. They smiled at me as they passed, and I saw that some of their diodes weren't just glowing, but producing small jets of light that were effortlessly propelling them forward. Presumably, they worked on the same principle as the beam that was holding me in place. When the Rose Girl finished speaking, she gestured to the other three to move in and examine me up close. Using the same light-based propulsion as the entities that had just passed, the three girls jetted over to me and began to playfully probe my every nook and cranny. My hair seemed especially novel to them, and they took turns petting my beard, my head, my eyebrows, chest, arms, legs, and pubic region. My genitalia, on the other hand, was humiliatingly rather amusing to me. They seemed to think of it as weird and a short tail that was on the wrong side. On the other hand, they were at least a little impressed by my more heavily muscled frame. 
These girls lived their entire lives in microgravity. Extra muscle mass would only have been a waste of calories. The teal girl pulled open my jaw and began inspecting my mouth. And as she did, I saw her blink a pair of nictitating membranes over her eyes. I also noticed that behind each of her small ears, there was some sort of neuroport or antenna that seemed to be connected to the computer modules on her head. The teal girl soon withdrew from my mouth with the same revulsion she'd shown to my clothes and stuck to a purely external examination from there on out. She and her two companions prodded at my neck where their extra air holes were. They studied my one-thumbed hands, my thumbless feet, my nails, and most of all, they examined my skin. Every scar, every mole, every blemish seemed to fascinate them, not to mention that the singular gradient of brown that human skin came in was likely incredibly dull to these brightly colored beings. They cooed, sang, and giggled as they scrutinized my body until the rose girl called them back to their perching ring. They obeyed without complaint, ritualistically waving their hands over one another as their diodes glowed more brightly, likely sanitizing them. As soon as they were in place, their leader once again began tapping virtual buttons that only she could see. Vertical and horizontal scanning beams began going up and down and back and forth over and over again as they imaged my body down to a microscopic level. I desperately hoped that those scans were benign and not made of some sort of dangerous particle radiation that modern physicists had yet to even theorize about. I tried to remain as calm as I could, telling myself that these beings were just curious and meant no harm. How malicious could a hyper-advanced species of candy-colored naked space girls really be, right? That's when another beam pursed through my chest and pulled out my heart. I know that it actually pulled my heart out and wasn't just making a hologram of it or something, because the instant I saw my heart phase out of my chest, the pounding in my ears turned into a constant rushing stream. The beam was circulating my blood for me, keeping me on life support, as the Rose Girl casually commented on my disembodied heart to her subordinates. It was still beating. I have no idea how. But the beam that was holding it was keeping it alive without me, the same as it was keeping me alive without it. I was still being scanned during all of this, presumably because they wanted to know how the fuck I would react to having my heart taken out of my fucking chest. The heart was being scanned, too, with enlarged holographic projections appearing around it. A smaller beam removed a small biopsy and placed it into a crystalline egg-shaped container that the girls all took turns examining. Then, when they were finally done with it, my heart floated back towards me, phased back into my chest, and somehow immediately reintegrated myself on a cellular level. I could feel it beating again. It would have been impossible not to, since it was beating as hard as I could ever remember it beating, but I can't even begin to fathom how that was scientifically possible. How could any technology, no matter how advanced, remove and replace body organs as easily as batteries in a toy car? However they did it, my heart was back where it belonged. Then the beam moved over a few inches to the left, pulled out my lung, and the process repeated all over again. 
then again with my other lung, and then with my liver, and over and over and over again. Organs, bones, and tissues were removed, scanned, sampled, and then returned as if they'd never been gone at all. For hours, I was taken apart and put back together. It was terrifying, degrading, and exhausting. But at the very least, it wasn't painful. The beam wasn't actually doing any damage, and whatever it was doing to temporarily fill in for the missing body parts also seemed to numb the area. I still wondered why they needed or wanted me conscious for all this. There was no doubt that they knew I was conscious. It was inconceivable that their scanners couldn't tell the difference between a conscious and an unconscious human, and they could clearly see my eyes frantically darting around as they vivisected me. The only explanation was that they just didn't care what they were putting me through. Eventually, the pink, teal, and lavender girls began to yawn and stretch, apparently having grown bored with the tedious work of cataloging all my innards. As the last of my organs was put back into place, the rose girl spoke to them in a tone that suggested they were just about finished. She put the last of the biopsies away and pulled out another crystal egg, opening it to reveal a rolled-up mesh woven from crystalline filaments. She summoned a hologram that depicted the mesh phasing into my skull, being placed into my brain, then getting absorbed into it, its many filaments fraying into smaller strands that branched off throughout my gray matter. The vivisection beam was precisely targeted at my forehead, and when she was certain it was positioned correctly, she placed the crystal mesh into the beam. I watched helplessly as it silently floated towards me and passed through my skull without any resistance at all. The integration into my body took a little longer than it did with my organs, the rose girl appearing to administer multiple system checks and subsequent recalibrations. Eventually, she got it the way she wanted it, and it seemed my ordeal was finally over. I was hoping that would mean that I would be released. But instead of going back to the hangar, a door opened straight ahead of me. The beam began pushing me forward, and my tormentors followed right beside me. We went down a long corridor and then into a smaller lab, this one filled with human-sized crystalline pods. Human-sized, because they were filled with human beings. They were all suspended in a fetal position, their scalps surgically removed to reveal a brain where the crystalline mesh had exploded into a dense tangle of fibers, growing like weeds and feeding into a series of two-meter-tall ellipsoid crystals. The people's eyes moved rapidly beneath their closed lids, revealing that even if they weren't awake, they weren't unconscious either. They were dreaming, dreams controlled by the crystalline supercomputer, programmed by the same strange beings that had spent the past several hours vivisecting me. The four girls from earlier were monitoring the grisly experiment, but stopped to enthusiastically embrace the arrival of their companions. The goldenrod girl and rose girl greeted each other with a hug and a nuzzle before turning their attention towards me. They spoke in their complex, melodic language, as the neural nets within the crystal head modules flickered more brightly, likely an indicator of information transfer. The goldenrod girl appeared to take a moment to review the data, and then moved in to inspect me personally. Unlike the three girls before, whose examination of me 
felt like it had been driven by sheer novel curiosity. This felt like a far more practiced inspection. After scrutinizing every inch of my body, she floated in front of me and pressed her forehead to mine. The module on her forehead lit up, and for a single instant, I was bombarded with a surge of complex mental information that I couldn't possibly begin to interpret. She pulled her head back and smiled at me, patted my chest, and sang what sounded like, This one's good, to her associate. I thought this meant I was going into one of the pods so that my brain could be used as potting soil for whatever they'd stuck inside of me. In spite of my exhaustion, that horrifying prospect was enough to arouse me back to full alertness. I fought desperately to put up some kind of a fight before going down, but my body just wouldn't obey. The last thing I saw was the Rose Girl pressing some virtual buttons again, and then I lost consciousness. When I woke up, I was in a hospital bed over a hundred kilometers from where my car would later be discovered. They'd found me, naked and unconscious, outside the emergency entrance in the wee hours of the morning. Strangely enough, the security cameras had inexplicably shut down right before my appearance, so they had no idea how I'd gotten there. Their first thought was that I was drunk or had overdosed on something, but I tested clean for everything. They couldn't explain why I was unconscious, and when I woke up, I was rambling incoherently about being vivisected and brain shipped by floating sparkly nudists from outer space. As you can probably guess, I was put under psychiatric observation. The doctors could find no evidence that my organs had been removed and put back in, and the mesh I was implanted with didn't show up on brain scans. It's still there, though. I know, because every now and then, I get a sudden surge of information out of nowhere that I can't begin to understand. I know that the mesh is communicating with its mothership, sending updates and receiving new instructions. I don't know what it's doing to my brain or if it's influencing my thoughts or behaviors in any way. I do dream of them, though. Dreams of parts of the ship I was never in, of members of their species I never met, participating in activities I never witnessed. I hear the language in my dreams, even though I don't know what any of it means. Well, except for one word. I think their name for their species translates to Astra Serena, or Star Sirens. I can't find any other account of alien abduction involving them, or even one where their ship didn't have artificial gravity, like in every sci-fi TV channel. Could it be that I'm the only person the sirens ever sent back, or at least the only one who was conscious during the experience and allowed to keep their memories? The only thing I'm sure of that day, one day, is the thing they put in my head will start to sprout, and when it does, they'll be back to put me in their demented crystal garden with the others. So please, take it from me. I know the government still isn't saying that unidentified aerial phenomenon are aliens. It's aliens. I hope you enjoyed They're Not Saying That It's Aliens, But It's Aliens by the Vespers Bell, as performed by yours truly. 
If you've enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash vespers-bell. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash V-E-S-P-E-R-S dash B-E-L-L. Be sure to look into both the Heroic Chronicles 1 and 2, the Reddit forums, r slash the Vespers Bell, and r slash odd underscore directions. And don't miss the novella, Madness is Like Gravity, starring some multicolored aliens with some interesting ways to pass the time. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, and be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program and that Otis Jiry sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Vespers would very much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. It's been a long and interesting ten seasons, and we're looking forward to presenting more works of the macabre and the monstrous in episodes to come. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can purchase season's passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky. And get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, 
Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.